Hey everyone, welcome to the State of Demand Gen podcast where we're going to mash together all the different content types, events, interviews, Demand Gen Live, when I'm a guest on a podcast, LinkedIn content, all here in audio format. If you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to sign up for the Demand Gen Live sessions that I'm putting together with Gatano Denardi at 7.30 p.m., 4.30 Pacific on Tuesday evenings. Tons of great content in there, lots of great insights, live Q&A, building a little community inside there. I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. So welcome back, everyone. Here we are again with uh, Mr. Chris Walker. Um, Kevin and I, you know, we had some conversations, you know, right before this call. We were chatting a little bit about, you know, some of the different things we've been seeing and kind of just want to kind of keep the conversation going here now. Yeah, excited to be back. <laughs> cool. So, so Chris, I know, uh, yeah, I mean, we were super excited the first time we spoke. This is our first, like, straight back-to-back episode recording, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, but one of the topics we talked a lot about last time was, you know, sort of a, you, you come across as like a salesperson reincarnated in a, in a marketer's body. You talk a lot about being front lines, voice to the customer, you know, and really like as a marketer, like calling leads, following up with leads, talking to customers, all of that. We also uh, talked sorry, sorry to interject, but th- that is what a classical mar- marketer does like talk voice of customer is a marketing activity. Um, it's just an upstream marketing activity. And so I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of people have pushed, if you look at like a classical, classical marketing model, product, play, pray, product, place, price, promotion. Um, however, and you see in a lot of tech right now, marketers are only focused on promotion. And when you don't focus on all the other elements, you actually, you, you stunt the ability to, to execute well on the promotion side. And so, um, yeah, I found that really interesting as I've entered this world, how few marketers go out and talk to customers in non-sales situations. They only listen to sales calls if they even do that. Otherwise, they get feedback from only the sales team. And, um, you know, going out and filming a podcast with 10 ICP customers as a marketer gives you all of the insights that you need to then go and create content that actually matters to them. So it's interesting because I I think sometimes people look at voice of the customer from like a customer experience perspective or, you know, something on the post sales side of the business. And we talked a lot about the metrics, like that's sort of what's driving the behaviors today. So if you're looking at a salesperson, you're looking at a marketer who's really tied to those legacy metrics, how do you coach them to sort of be innovative on the forefront, start to do things a little bit differently knowing that their boss may be looking at them in a legacy way or would you tell them to get the hell out of there and find Mm -hmm. a new boss? I mean, I've always found and I've skated around this question for over for years now, um, with, Hey, you could try and send them this piece of content, or you could try and talk to them about this, or you could ask them to run an experiment. But, um, when it really comes down to it as a marketer, like you need to go and find someone to work for that knows what the fuck they're doing today. And so, I mean, that, that's the way that I, that I see it is you can try and convince people and you might get over the little step where someone gives you $3,000 to go travel and see six customers. But then the next time you want to do something innovative or smart, you're going to run into the same resistance. And over time it's going to wear on you. It's going to slow down your career. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's such a good point. And I think for, for other people, too, that might be in that situation, like, the harsh reality is, like, yes, you might need to find somewhere, but, like, what what sorts of things would you give them as, like, some, like, simple steps that they could take, right? Like, people listening, they might be like, oh, Chris, that's great, but, like, I can't leave, bro. Like, mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, totally empathetic to that. Um, an easy one, if you can't, if you don't have budget to travel, is to, I think one of the most interesting ones that I did as a marketer was, I call, I call it loss analysis. So, after a deal closes in a CRM within the next 10 days, I would call the main point of contact on that deal. And I would say, Hey, I'm the, uh, the, the director of customer happiness here at blah, 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 blah company. Um, and all I want to do is just, you know, talk to you for five minutes and understand your perspective so that we can do better next time. And I would ask them questions. So how did it work with the sales rep? How did that happen? You know, it's in the, in here, it says you chose a competitor. What did you learn? And sometimes you'll hear things that are interesting. Like one time I heard your sales rep worked on this deal for 12 months and we're in a contract for the next five years with your competitor. Like they were completely wasting their time. And so when you start to hear those insights, it then gives you one, you can go and help a rep on a one-to-one level. Um, it's interesting, like most sales directors or managers wouldn't do this either. Um, and it also gives you insight because you get to talk to people and it takes five or 10 minutes. And usually in those instances, if you show them that you really just want to understand them, they tell you the truth. And that gives you the opportunity without having any budget. It just takes a little bit of effort to, uh, to start to do some of those things. So loss analysis is one of them. Um, I'm not super high on this one, but um, I found a lot of value to pair some of the qualitative insights that I got by talking to customers with some quantitative. So we would do, we would like have, we had zoom info. We would get people along with the people in our CRM database to have a nice mix of people that fit the ICP. But if they're in the Salesforce database, they've probably at least heard of you. Right. And so find people that if they're not in there, they may not have heard of you mix those all together, ask some qualifying questions up front. You can use a survey monkey. We would use Qualtrics, which is a little bit more expensive, but like deploy a survey and understand at a quantitative level what what that stuff looks like. Who are they? Like, how do they like to buy? What products are they using right now? Um, what things are most important to them? You can ask anything. Um, and so those are some lightweight ways to get some insights as a marketer, which then helps you. One, you can find the people that really like you and they put your their email address in a survey and then you can reach out to them and have a deeper conversation afterwards. Or you can find the people that really don't like you and do the same thing. And so... Yeah, those are some ideas. The the first when it all boils down to is that you have to believe that it's a good use of your time. And so I'm not sure that people I even can get over that step. I think it's the most important. I love that, man. That that's such a such a good way to look at it. And I think like a loss analysis, like something so simple can drive such a huge impact for so many marketers out there that aren't like looking at their CRMs. Like honestly, when I've been inside of companies, the marketers most times didn't even know what the CRM looked like. They'd be like, what's inside of Salesforce? Mm -hmm. Like that is a question that we got from marketers. So definitely think if you're a marketer out there, um, just take a look at your CRM and see like, like Chris said, go to the loss analysis, see what's going on. Um, you definitely pull some insights out of there. It's really foreign too. Um, because when I was in, I built demand gen at a company from the ground up, that was a hundred percent outbound. And 18 months later, they were 33% inbound to $35 million company, like substantial net new revenue acquisition in a very short period of time. And you see the customer acquisition costs and the sales efficiency metrics go through the roof. Um, 
But the way that I got there is by positioning to executives about things that they care about. So I wasn't talking about website visits or cost per click or number of leads. I was talking about qualified pipeline revenue and sales cycle length and win rate and things that matter. And so it's interesting because I just like, no one told me to look at those things. It just seemed to make sense. And then, um, and now you like start to look out in the world at companies that mainly measure their marketing teams or their agency relationships for that matter on number of leads and cost per lead. So you go into most companies, marketers, once they hit the form, marketers don't care after that. Once they convert, they don't even look and see, okay, we're doing 20 tactics and which ones are actually driving revenue. Very few companies actually look at that level, um, which I find fascinating. So how do you bridge that gap, right? Like the, the sales and marketing alignment gap. And again, I think so many of these behaviors are driven through these metrics, but is there, I mean, is there one metric that, that you look at that you just can't live without amongst everything else out there? I mean, revenue ends up becoming the North star. And I break that into, um, to go a little bit deeper is I break that into marketing sourced revenue. Um, and so marketing source, I'm just looking for people that come through a sales conversion on a website. Okay. And so that's what I call marketing source. Everything else falls into an outbound or event or anything else. And then inside of marketing source, you can start to look at the sources syndication, um, which I think is, which is, I think is ineffective, um, organic search, all these different pieces. Um, and you start to be able to see, but I think the North star for marketers should be marketing source revenue through an inbound website sales conversion. Um, and then look at it as a contribution to overall revenue. And then there are a million layers underneath that, but I think that ends up being the thing that they need to look at. And then after that, it's customer acquisition costs through those executions. Yeah. Just one thing to add on that too. Like if you're thinking about um, the kind of like marketer sourcing the revenue, like at at the beginning of this, you kind of mentioned a little bit about um, how the brands kind of aren't like these tech brands, if they, if they're not understanding that like brand is first and um, they're trying to focus on revenue, like a lot of their marketing tactics and operations are just already flawed. So they're just continuing to put money and effort into um, a story that's not being properly told. It's like, I guess one thing that I'm curious to, for you to touch on would be like, how would you, um, you know, recommend uh, companies kind of start to tell a different story about their product or their brands? Because I feel like this is something you touch on a lot um, mm-hmm. and I don't see it being done very well across yeah. the board. Yeah, I've never said it like this before, but the way you asked the question sparked this idea is that I need, I think we need to start breaking brand into two big buckets, strategic brand, and then at the execution level, what drives brand long-term. And so if we look at that into the two different buckets, strategic brand, colors, messaging, logo, those things matter a lot. If you move into execution and your messaging doesn't match what the buyer needs and your positioning doesn't match relative to competitors, your execution is not going to work as well. And so I'd prefer to work with companies that have already figured those things out. It's just not a space where I like to play anymore because I think that there are smart people. You need a lot of work to talk to customers to really figure that out deeply. So there's that bucket. And then if you break it out, like I think this is where most companies are falling short, which is in the execution level, how you drive brand long-term. Nobody actually thinks about this. And so how do you drive brand long-term? 
I call it brand marketing. Most people think that brand marketing falls into the strategic bucket that I just talked about, but brand marketing is driving value long-term for whoever you're trying to reach, which creates awareness about what you do with no direct immediate ROI expectations, knowing that through the awareness created by providing value, you will create future sales opportunities in the future. And it will augment your outbound sales efforts and make them more efficient. Wait, let's talk a little bit more about that. (laughs) For a couple of reasons. One, because essentially, and this is something that came up um, uh, the other day, I was talking with someone about the infinite game from Simon Sinek, right? And it's interesting, right? Because all these salespeople and marketers are in a company for a specific period of time and they don't know when their call might be made to go somewhere else and take their talents elsewhere, or they don't know when it's not going to be a good fit. But like what you're saying is essentially people are going to be coming in and out of this company, but the whole strategy is geared towards the long term of building awareness and providing value to a specific person. And it's interesting. Cause like, I'm like, wait, so to simplify all that for everybody, if you're thinking about the way that um, someone like Juicy Juice markets, like they market to their children and the kids, and then they market to the parents. So long term, they hit you when you're a kid, and they might even hit you with a, when you're a parent. So that way, over the span of 30 years, they might come back and potentially buy from you because they like what you did. So how is that applied to tech? Like, could you just touch on that? Because I find that fascinating. Yeah, I mean, when you break out your uh, your results expectations, it falls into short term and long term. Right. And so, and I think that that in between sales and marketing, both have short term and long term objectives. The thing that I see across a lot of companies that that most marketing executions do not focus at all on the long term, because of how they're driven um, to how they're scored. And so, like, um, I believe, that if you actually did the steps that I talked before and looked at the sources and what's actually driving revenue, you would find that you're wasting somewhere between 50 and 99% of your budget on things that do not drive revenue as a marketer. And then you would be able to also identify whatever is working and keep doing whatever is working and try and max those channels out and then take the rest that's left over, which will be substantial and focus on the long term. And what's interesting is that when you think about things from a long-term standpoint, it changes the behaviors that you do, but you also get better results in the short term. And so it's just so interesting. Like you actually get more business when you just provide value and don't ask for it. But people think about it so directly because they're focused on leads or whatever else they're scored on that they end up doing the wrong things and not getting the right result. It's so fascinating. Yeah, I think you see that happening everywhere. And I think where where I'm seeing a shift on the sales side, right, is because I think sales is trying to take some of this into their their own hands. And this is where you see a lot of the social selling and the evolution on that side of the fence, right? And there's outrageous, amazing examples of sellers building these massive communities around themselves. Um, where do you see the future of sales and the, the combination of social selling and how sales can to an extent, be their own marketing machine. Is that going to be a massive component to how sellers sell in five to 10 years? I've been talking about this for a long, probably five years now that I do believe that the ultimate path where people want to get to 
is a full funnel account executive model where the account executives are doing a lot of content marketing and creating somewhere between 25 and 50% of their own pipeline. And the other 50% is coming through high value, high quality deals through marketing demand gen done well. And when you do that, since the leads are high quality, you don't need an SDR triage layer. And therefore those can go right to AEs, create a better buying experience and be more efficient from a customer acquisition cost standpoint. And so that's what I, that's what I think people should try and end up at, right? Like I supposed to, I commented on Josh Bronstein this morning what he was describing was creating a show that makes, that creates value for your buyers by interviewing buyers that talking about things that they care about that other buyers might find interesting. That is called content marketing. And it's the, by far the most effective form of business development today when executed properly. So why isn't every rep trying to figure out how to do that and create value and build their own pipeline? Because I think we talked about on the last show, it's clear that from when I talk with AEs across a lot of different businesses, that the opportunities that they source, they think are better. They close at a higher rate, they close faster. And so why aren't they trying to create more? And so I, I, the, the way, the, the challenge for a lot of companies is how do we get from where we are today, which is so far away from the picture that I just painted mm. to there. It's a long journey. Most companies do not want to take it because it's hard and it's different than what they're doing today. And they would need to rip and replace the current infrastructure they've built in order to do it. I think you're going to see the role of a salesperson evolve greatly over the next couple of years. And I think you're going to see just like anything, it's evolution. You're either going to adapt and you're going to thrive or unfortunately your skill set is going to become diminished and you're no longer going to be able to, perform at a high level, right? Like this is just a natural evolution. I think that's happening within our profession because there's so many more opportunities and channels and ways for you to, to build community and to build your own pipeline. Um, is there anyone that you see out there today from a, from a seller's perspective, that's, that's out there, that's doing it at a high level that people could look at and be like, okay, cool. That's someone I can try to study potentially not mimic, but you know, study as like a, a proof point or a proof case. Yeah. And by the way, I think it's fine to look at someone who's doing it really well and figure out how to apply it to, to what you want to accomplish. Right. Like that's fine. Like people looked at Michael Jordan about how he shot and dribbled and copied it and became better basketball players. That's fine. Right. And so like, um, to, to, to break this down a little bit deeper. So we actually create value is that, the people that are doing it well right now happen to only the ones that I've seen are either salespeople selling to salespeople or marketers selling to marketers. I fall into that bucket right now. I didn't always. And so when I was a marketer trying to sell to neonatologists who take care of premature babies in an ICU setting, like it was a lot more difficult for me to figure out how to create content. And if you look back like five years ago when I was creating that with neonatologists and experts and interviewing them, um, you know, the quality of the content has gotten better in the past five years as I've been doing it. Um, however, the, the thesis on that still exists. And so I would like to start to see, and I think it becomes most interesting for people when they're salespeople and they're not selling to a salesperson. And that's where it gets challenging because salespeople can easily create, reach out to five other salespeople and create content. And you see plenty of people out there that are doing it that way. Um, I think you start to see some serious benefits 
um, when you go into a very large Fortune 500 company, for instance, and you're a sales rep there, <clears throat> and you become the top rep in six months by doing things a completely different way. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I, I think like one cu- curiosity that I have, and this is kind of a little bit about what we touched on earlier, Kev, and you were talking about this sense of a utility player and what it's at. And again, if I'm hearing you right, Chris, and I'm just going to put it out there because I know people heard exactly what you said. SDRs essentially will become less important and a little bit obsolete because if the reason that a person is on a team is to be full cycle and source their own leads, then the closing experience is going to come with the AE directly. And this is going to be something that they eventually phase out and they're going to have to transform. Is that kind of right? I mean, that's the way that I think the best companies should move to operate. Is it going to happen tomorrow? Definitely not. Is it going to happen within the next five years? I don't know. Will it be over in the next 10? I think so. Um, but the the idea of putting yourself in a bucket and saying that that role is going to be obsolete, I don't think is right. It's about the skills that you have and what you do inside of that role. Mm. And so like maybe SDRs would still be around, but what they do is going to have to change a lot. And so that's, that's kind of the way that I think is like, I think that it would be better to just have a full cycle AE from a buyer perspective. But if we don't, if we ignore that vision and we just talk about, okay, let's look at SDRs, like what they're doing today at most tech companies is not the most effective thing to do. And so, and so if you wanted to start somewhere, um, maybe like coach them on doing it a different way. I talk about this with sales leaders all the time. Is like if they're if they're making calls for six hours a day, or they have some type of quota for a day, like go in and audit, like how how effective actually is it? And then I would carve out a group of them, and I would run a different experiment. So if you have twenty SDRs, I would take four of them, twenty percent, and I would have them do it a different way for six months. And I think what you'll find is that if you follow this lead in six months, those people end up being much better AEs. Like those are the people that grow and move out and become actual reps and are more successful because the skills that you learn as an SDR do not translate to being a full cycle or even a closer right now. Yeah. I, one of the things I'm thinking about that, that kind of just came to mind is, you know, a lot of companies have social media marketers, Right. And I, and and I I may be wrong here, but what a lot of what I see them doing is a lot more of like the corporate social media for, you know, for the brand, for the company, the tech, whatever. It's PR that nobody cares about. We had this, we had this picnic. We're at this trade show. Nobody cares. Right. So it's a lot of corporate just, you know, announcements, PR that's falling on deaf ears. It's not adding value for your prospects and potentially this, this evolution of SDR is, it's like you're having these marine social media guys going out building communities, right? Like, like an AE would, right? It's, it's a one-to-one sort of relationship out there. They're building these communities and maybe you're starting to see this, this army of individuals that it's a social media play, but it's building it around your ICP, building around your target top accounts. Is that maybe a transition that you can see the SDRs evolving to? Yeah. I'd love to see that. Right. It'd be pretty interesting. And then, my, my one question for you, cause again, we, we try and look very futuristic. Obviously the theme around this is a lot about innovation and where, 
this is going to be in five to 10 years. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you're, you're seeing, you're seeing some sales reps who are building massive communities around themselves. And that, that brings a tremendous amount of value for the organization they work for. Now we touched on this very briefly in our last episode is, is having this leverage over your employer, because what you have, that, that that's your community, that's your people, right? And your, your company values that. Will we ever get to an age where sales is almost like sports, where you have a, you have a, you have a sales agent, right? And you may be an SDR, but you have a community of 30,000 buyers in that ICP. And like, you could be like a $200,000 base salary SDR and you got an agent negotiating for you. Like, is that, is that a vision of the future? Um, so Joe Mullins, uh, is a, is a executive recruiter in the health tech, uh, healthcare industry. Uh, I know him at a surface level and I've gotten to know him better. And he's been talking about this a lot recently, which is that why shouldn't it be like that? Um, where you almost have, you have, you're an agent and you rep 20 people. Um, and you place them at companies and negotiate the deals, just like if you were a sports agent. Um, and then, you know, you are responsible for the success of that person. So if at some point they want to get traded, quote unquote, then you help them get traded. And I do believe that that, like what you just painted makes perfect sense to me. There are sales reps out there, VP of sales with 50,000 followers on LinkedIn that are bringing disproportionate value to the company. And the only thing that's keeping them there is the 1% equity that they own in the, in the company. So it's going to be equity or something. But if you, if you're not a VP of sales, if you're an SDR, you don't have that equity. It's 0.01%. It's not enough upside. And so if you end up amassing the, the 25,000 followers on LinkedIn or wherever you decide to do it, YouTube, anything, then it starts to get really interesting for you. That's how you take, like, I've, I've been really interested and it's kind of what happened in my career is that i worked really hard when I was at a low level. Like the, I was doing CMO level work as a marketing manager. People just didn't see it or recognize it for the two years I was doing it. And then once I built up all those skills, I jumped, but jumped over the VP of marketing or the director of marketing, the VP of marketing. And now I work directly with CMOs because I did all the work up front. And so, and I know what I'm talking about. And so I, I do think that there's a path there through hard work and innovation where a lot of people would be able to take a similar path. I really love that, man. And I think that's such a good point to, to bring up. You worked twice as hard when you were in the weeds, in the trenches, to then enable yourself a couple years down the line to now be working directly with the person who you worked like two years ago. I think that's something that's not talked about enough. And I myself was similar, right? Like now I'm, I'm not quite to the, you know, VP of sales age yet, but it's like, I'm on the brink of that. Right. So as you start to think about like, Oh wow. Like when I was an SDR, I was doing all these things every single day to be able to think about, Oh, well, what is it like? Like, what is it like for the CRO to be thinking about how they build out the team and like, what sorts of things are they looking at um, that I'm not seeing that's different than just writing emails and sending cadences. So I think that's a really good point for anybody out there that's like looking to grow and kind of take themselves to the next level, especially right yeah. now. I, um, I made a post probably like last September. It was early when in my LinkedIn following wasn't really that, that I hadn't amassed a lot of followers and it went nuts. And the first line of it was always be thinking like you're the CEO. And I've spent a majority of my career 
whether I was an entry level person all the way up to my last, my last role, thinking like the CEO, not just looking at the, uh, how many leads I got for someone looking at the customer acquisition costs, looking at the sales cycle length, looking at the cost of goods sold and the margin that we're going to make on it, looking at how much runway we have and how we're going to need to grow to raise money. Like those those are the thoughts that I was doing when I was at a low level that then enabled me because I was, I was in the work. I still am. I work harder than I did then. And, um, and that propelled me to go and then have those conversations at a really high executive level without necessarily having the, on a resume, the title to do so. Cause I was just there doing the work. And, and another kind of insight is that for people, I spent my almost my entire career working at companies less than 300 employees. And you learn and the, the most recent one with 19 employees. And so like you learn so much more, you get exposed to so much more in small companies. Um, if you, if you harness the opportunity and take it. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because in a similar case, I've always worked in, you know, startup, small companies, you wear a million hats, you get exposed. I came up very much in a traditional sales background, but then sales ops I was thrown into because no one else could do it. And I just naturally sort of think this way. So it, it allowed me to get a much more of a diverse experience, right? Working with different teams, different you know exposure to different things. And then to your point, you know, there's definitely been times in my job where it was like, I'm not the CRO, I'm not even the VP of sales yet. And they're like, you're doing like the CRO's job. And at exactly. first like it, it felt good. And then after a while it got, it was like, well, it kind of had like frustration towards it. Right. Mm. So I'm like, well, I'm not getting paid like that. I don't have that title. Mm. And then I was told it was like, when you're, when you're earlier on in your career, sometimes it's good just to shut up and eat shit and just do it. Right. Because later on in my career at a younger age, I could go and be like, Oh no, I've done this, this, and this. Right. So it was like the silver lining of it was, it was kind of like my boot camp, right? Like going through this really, really hard times. Yeah. You didn't get the title. You didn't get the pay, but the payoff was going to come. It just was, it was playing the long game. It resonates. That resonates so much with me. I spent, um, the last 12 months of working at one company making $85,000 when I should be making 180. Like I was doing an executive level role and I had the marketing manager title and they weren't giving me a promotion. But that year that I was there built everything from where I am now. And so that, that, that really does, um, that does resonate. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think when I was in it, it was super hard. It was super frustrating. When I look back, is it the, one of the best decisions I ever made? Yes, I do. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's tough. Cause I think a lot of people, you know, they want the promotion titles seem super important nowadays to people. People are impatient and, and, and I get all of that. I was driving, um, I was driving like the amount of revenue is the six top reps at this company. And I was making like, I was watching reps pull in a quarter million dollars a year when I was making 85 and I was driving business six times as much as them. And obviously they were a part of the, of the deals I was innovating. And I was a, I was a component of that system. Um, but it was frustrating. Um, so yeah. So how'd you deal with that? Like, so how, cause I think, I think there's, you know, you and I share a very similar experience in that, but I'm sure there's, there's plenty of people out there going through the same thing. How did you, 
And did you see the, did you have like the long game? Did you see it? Just having a vision and being patient and knowing that I was not going, I didn't think that I was going to work in a company like that for that much longer. Like knowing that at some level in my early thirties, I planned on creating a company anyway. And so having the skills and having meaningful results at several companies that I could, that I can then talk about one, because it was important and one company IPO'd and I think I helped in that and different things like that. The second one is because I spent so much time in the work that I started to see patterns. Like I, now when I go and look at a company, like, and I see X, Y, and Z, I know why most people don't. And so, yeah. I think too, like when you're, when you're looking at at whether you're a marketer, whether you're sales, again, it's all little by little, it's getting more and more blended together, but you have to show your value. You have to show how you move the needle and the way that you approach things. It's not a CPL. It's not a number of marketing qualified leads. It's revenue. It's, it's true impact, right? I think more than anything as a marketer, if you're able to show true impact, right? Yeah. It's going to be maybe more difficult to hit a revenue goal as a marketer than an MQL goal for sure. It's a little bit less out of your control, but if you took on that approach, I guarantee you took on that approach for six months, you're going to start to find ways to actually impact it. And then the way it sets up your career, right? Your next interview, you're like, Hey, I drove $6 million in sales last quarter. Mm-hmm. Like what other marketers are telling you they're doing that. And it, mm-hmm. it probably sets you apart. Yeah. And I'm I mean, sure you when, saw that when I'm interviewing marketers, the, the one thing that's really stands out is what metrics do you, would you score the success of this role on? And you can quickly find whether or not you want to hire someone. Um, and so like, <laughs> the, um, the idea about how you get from MQLs to revenue is the challenge because when you change your metric, most marketers end up doing sales activities. And so if you move out of the MQLs into the revenue, the real thing that should happen is that you change the behavior of your marketing to be less focused on the conversion and more focused on bringing in people that are actually going to buy stuff. And so it goes against a lot of all of the metrics that tech companies score on because what's going to happen is you're going to have way less leads, but they're going to convert at a much better rate. And so, and when they convert at a much better rate, your sales cycles are shorter, your win rates are higher, your alignment with sales is better, all these different things all created through this one metric that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who even created MQLs? It's, um, I don't fully understand. So if I'm misquoting them much, but I mean, just, uh, it is what it you, is. everyone knows what it is, what it is, but there's two things that I think about. The first one is, uh, the predictable revenue model, which built it mm. mainly of SDRs. And so basically now they've had, okay, we have SDRs jamming leads in for meetings And now it's just have our marketing team do the same thing in a different way. So that's one that I think is an interesting one. The second one is there's like this iterations of the demand waterfall from serious decisions, which is basically let's get as many leads as possible, triage them with SDRs, the ones that are teleprospecting is what they call it. And then, and then one of the ones that get through go to AEs. Um, And so those two frameworks I do believe have driven a lot of the behaviors that are happening right now. Yeah. And the one thing that you mentioned before is the customer experience, right? Like think of that, right? Like it's just this assembly line, you're getting passed off and passed off and passed off. Right. And that can't, uh, not saying it doesn't work because obviously there's a couple of companies out there. Yeah. You know, um, but 
there's what degree is the uh, question I ask. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think probably the, the ones that are working are maybe a little bit more of the outlier than, than the, than the rule, you know, like, I think they're more the exception because and it's a lot of companies, they can't make the math work beyond a revenue value or you're in a market for so long. Like a lot of the companies that were doing those things got to a hundred million in 2012. Like the world was different. Yeah, right? exactly. That's, that's a key insight there. Um, so yeah. So we are running up on 1 PM guys. So I'm just trying to be conscious of time, but then also like, man, I don't understand how this happens. Like, I feel like every time we ask a question or every time a thought pops up, it's just like, just more, more <laughs> things go. But then it's, yeah. it's not just about thoughts, but it's about the value and the, the intention behind, you know, what you both are saying that I find super interesting. And I think other people find valuable as well. So shout out to both of you for, for crushing. Yeah, this was awesome. Game. Yeah, this was really cool. I, I, I love this shit, man. So always fun to talk shop. Yeah, for, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So um, maybe we won't do it next week, but <laughs> I'm down. Just look yeah. it up.